Amen. Speak, O Lord, till your church is filled and the earth is filled with your glory. Oh, friends, the hope that we have for the glory of God to be spread throughout the earth and for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to be built up is for God to speak. May that, may that continue to happen. Friends, when you hear promises that something is going to get better. How do you tend to respond? When you hear someone or a group of people make you promises, perhaps it's even your spouse, things are going to get better. Perhaps it's your employer. Perhaps it's uh, a family member. Perhaps... Uh, friends, perhaps uh, church friends, things are going to get better. How do you tend to respond? Most of the time, we get excited, especially if those improvements are things we care about. For example, if some politician would promise us that in five years, the traffic problem in Austin would be resolved, we might get excited about it because we know that our city has a significant traffic problem. Or perhaps we may not get as excited about it because we know that this promise is made on a political campaign and we know that political campaign promises don't always get to be fulfilled. Some promises of improvement are received with suspicion. Some promises of improvement are received with disbelief or dismissal. Some may respond with saying, I won't believe it until I see it. Whenever we respond that way, we are questioning the character of the one making the promise or we're questioning whether or not such promises would really come to pass, or perhaps, perhaps when we respond with such suspicion, it's because we don't, want, we don't want to get our hopes up in the case the promises don't come to pass, and we get to experience another wave of disappointment. Whatever the reasons why we might hear and respond to promises with disbelief, whatever they are, Oh, friends, in the passage we're about to read today, God calls us to respond to his promises with coming to him. In the passage we're about to read today, we see God laying out promises of his coming restoration. But our, unlike our attitudes that sometimes are suspicious to great promises, unlike our attitudes that sometimes want to hold off believing until seeing, God's promised restoration does not allow us to stay uninvolved and just watch from the sidelines to see if it's really going to happen. God's promised restoration invites us to respond positively even now. In this text we're about to read, we're going to see more details about what God's restoration and invitation involve. So would you open God's word to the book of Isaiah? chapter 54. We'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to chapter 55, uh, verse 13. 
Isaiah 54 and 55. We encourage you to open God's Word to page number 614 in the Pew Bibles that, that we have for you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to grab our Pew Bibles and take it home and, and read it. We'd love for you to have them. Here's God's Word for us this morning. Isaiah 54. As we read uh, this chapter, particularly, there's going to be a few words that are difficult to pronounce. Uh, bear with me and uh, let's plow through it, this passage together. It's a glorious passage. It starts with a call to sing. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. And the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I also have created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, 
and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness for the, to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord. While he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, But it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be let forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you pray with me? Join me in asking God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, you are indeed a great God who revealed yourself to us, who revealed your promises, and who make invitations to your people to come to you. Father, would you speak to our hearts in a way that enables us to respond to your word for the glory of your name and for the nourishment of our souls. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, the passage we just read this morning is a rich, rich passage. It is the ending of of a major, conclu- a major section in the book of Isaiah, a section that started as early as chapter 40. These two chapters make most sense when we understand them, not only as a conclusion to this major section from chapter 40 to chapter 55, 
But when we understand them also in light of what happened earlier in chapter 52 and 53, last week we looked at the fourth servant song in which God revealed the mystery how a holy God can declare sinners like us. How can he declare them righteous? On what grounds can a holy God bring to himself a remnant whom he saves, whom he protects, and whom he brings to himself? How can a holy God bring a rebellious people back to himself? It is by providing a servant who would suffer for the sins of his people. And the prophecy about the suffering servant was a prophecy about the suffering of Christ and about his subsequent victory. We saw last week that God's suffering servant will succeed and be exalted. We saw last week that God's suffering servant has been dismissed and despised. We saw last week that God's suffering servant was suffering because he suffered as a substitute in our place. And finally, we saw last week that the suffering servant was promised to be victorious and be satisfied. One of the promises that God made about his suffering servant is that the suffering servant in his victory and in his satisfaction will not keep it all to himself, but that he will share the spoil of his victory and the spoil of his satisfaction. And we might wonder, what, what is that spoil? What is the spoil of his victory? What is the spoil of his satisfaction? The answer is chapter 54. Chapter 54, we get to hear a catalog, a list of the spoil of the victory, of the spoil of the satisfaction that God would give his servant and the servant would now share to his people. So as we look at chapter 54, we must understand it that it's a list of descriptions of the blessings of the restoration that God promises to his people in light of what his servant has accomplished. So as we look at chapter 54 and 55, two ways to summarize these two chapters is to point out, one, God's restoration, and second, God's invitation. Chapter 54 is about God's restoration. Chapter 55 is about God's invitation. As we look at each of these two major points, there's going to be a, a, a few sub-points under each of them. Let's look at the first one, God's restoration. Chapter 54, God promises a glorious restoration. What is involved in this restoration that God promises? Four elements. Four elements that God promises in this new restoration. A new people a shame-free future, an enduring peace, and a glorious city. Let's look at each of these briefly as, as God's restoration is unpacked in this chapter 54, and then we'll look at the invitation that God gives. But the four elements of God's glorious restoration, first of all, is a promise or includes a promise that God will rebuild his people. We see that in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 54. Not only that, but God's restoration 
will rebuild his people despite any human limitation and any human hopelessness. It's not merely that God will rebuild his people. It's that God will rebuild his people despite any human limitation and any human hopelessness. How do we see that? Well, the chapter starts with a call to sing. But notice, to whom is this call to sing given? To a barren woman. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Now, the image of a barren woman who is promised to give birth reminds us of the story of Sarah in the Old Testament who could not have children. And yet, when she had lost all hope, God announced to her that she will give birth to a son, a son of promise. And she did give birth to a son. In Isaiah, God announced a similar news. New life will come come from the one who is not able to have children. But it doesn't stop here. God changes a picture from a barren woman to another woman who is desolate. In verse 2, God says that the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Now, throughout the book of Isaiah, the picture of a desolate woman was a picture of God's people being destroyed and broken because of their rebellion, because of their sin. Their very existence was on the line, even physically speaking, as they were exiled and attacked and threatened and and taken out of their land. But God promised here to rebuild his people. God actually promises that the children of the desolate one, after the desolation... The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Now, this is not what we would expect. Naturally, we would expect the desolate woman to remain desolate in her desolation, especially to be left without any offspring. But God says, no, I will rebuild the desolate one, and she will have more children than the one who has not been desolate. This is a picture of a spiritual rebuilding that God promises to give to his people. Friends, most of us are tempted to look at a desolate situation and give up hope. Humanly speaking, we might have all the reasons to wallow in our hopelessness. But God is a God who can rebuild people out of the most hopeless, out of the most desolate of situations. When the Apostle Paul spoke to the Galatians about following Christ, and they were in danger of veering away from Christ and going back to the Mosaic law, Paul speaks about two cities of Jerusalem. The earthly city of Jerusalem, which was tied to the Mosaic law, and the heavenly spirit city of Jerusalem, which was tied to the, to the, to the child, children of promise. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says that the promise that God has given in the Old Testament, that, the child, that God will raise more children from the desolate woman, 
was a prophecy about the conversion of the Jews and Gentiles to follow Christ. In Galatians 4, we see that promise. The Apostle Paul shows that the promise of the desolate one will have more children than the married woman is a prophecy that was going to be fulfilled in the conversion both of Jews and of the Gentiles to follow Jesus. Ask yourself, do you rely on a God who can bring life and increase His people when all human means are gone? If you were a Jewish person after the exile happened, you would think there's no more hope. And look, 2,700 years later, we sit around here, we look around the globe, millions and millions and millions of people throughout the nations of the earth are followers of Jesus. It's a sign that God is able to rebuild His people even out of His desolate ones. Do you turn to a God who is able to bring and rebuild His people even out of desperate, hopeless situations? Do you turn to such a God in prayer? Do you turn to Him believing that desolate situations are not a limit for God? For those of us who are Christians, our very salvation is a proof that God is able to raise up children from the desolate woman. Our desolate experiences do not limit God's ability to restore and to rebuild His people. The second part of, of God's restoration is that God promises a shame-free future. We see this in chapter 54, verses 4 through 8. Verse 4, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. In other words, these words, God speaks to our natural tendency we have to fear because of shame. One of the reasons that often motivates our fear is shame. God's people have experienced lots of shame, both in the Old Testament and we might say even us, even today. Because of our own rebellion, because of our own wayward uh, ways. But now God says to His people, they have nothing to fear about the future because they will never, ever be ashamed again. Not only that, but God also says that He will remove the memory of shame from their past. Friends, think about that promise. Not only will God, God says, you will no longer be ashamed in the future, but even the, 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 the remembrance of shame in the past will be gone. And the reason why shame and reproach will be taken away is because of the promise God gives in verse 5. God says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Israel's desolate situation was described not only through the picture of a barren woman or a desolate woman. Israel's desolate situation was also described through the picture of a, of a woman who has been widowed. The reproach of widowhood may not be as much as, as strongly felt today as it was in ancient times. In ancient times, for a woman to be barren, desolate, and widowed, with no social security, with no family to support her, with no provision for the future, oh friends, that was a hopeless situation. But notice what God says to the widow 
God says, for your maker is your husband. That means that spiritual speaking, God's reproach people will now have a husband who will never die. God himself. No more widowhood. This is not about a husband who will die or a second husband who will die. No, this is about a husband who will never die. God says, He, our maker, is going to be our husband. God will take away forever the reproach of being separated, the reproach of widowhood. This is a spiritual picture. In verse 6, the picture of God's people changes from widowhood to another picture. This time, the deserted wife who has been grieved in her spirit. Yet her abandoned status was not an obstacle for the Lord to call her back. In verse 6, God says, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Did you notice that in all these images, God's people are described as a woman? As a woman who is either barren or desolate, or widowed, or deserted. And reality is, they had experiences of all four. And yet, these four pictures of hopelessness, they were caused by the sin and the rebellion of God's people against their maker. And yet, God says, I will take all that. I will remove that shame. I will remove that reproach. And I will bring a permanent restoration Oh, friends, God will take the shame and the reproach of our rebellious actions. He will take it away. Sometimes after we have sinned, and after we become convicted of our sin, we might grow in feeling that the shame and the guilt and the reproach of our rebellion can never be taken away. We may be tempted to think that nothing will wash away that shame and reproach. Yet God says otherwise. For his redeemed people, for those whom God saves, God will take away not only a future shame, but even, even the remembrance of the past shame. What a comforting future God promises for his people. But it doesn't stop there. God, a third aspect of God's restoration is that God promises an enduring peace. God promises an enduring peace. We see that in verses 9 and 10. As early as the book of Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 7, God told us about a coming king who would be the prince of peace. But in chapter 48, verse 22, God says to the wicked, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. One of the characteristics of the future of the wicked is that they will have no peace. But... One of the benefits that the servant of the Lord accomplished for those who turn to the Lord, the servant accomplished peace. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. So in chapter 55, verse 10, God announces not merely peace, but a covenant of peace. 
For the mountains may depart, God says, and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. This is the only time in Isaiah where God introduces the notion of a covenant of peace. The reference to peace shows up more, a few more times in our text. In chapter 53, I'm sorry, 54, verse 13, God says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And at the end of, of chapter 55, verse 12, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Do you hear all these references to peace in these chapters? The peace that God speaks of is not merely political. It's not merely economical. It's not merely financial. It's not merely the, the peace of a job security. It's not merely the, the, the peace of, of having reputation with your friends. As one Bible interpreter points out in the Old Testament, peace refers to the full enjoyment of all that God has promised. Such peace, however, is based on having a right relationship with God. Friend, we cannot have this peace without first pursuing a right relationship with God. We cannot have this peace apart from that relationship with God. We can't work for this peace. The only way we can have this peace is by relying upon the suffering servant whose suffering and death was the means by which we are granted peace. Romans 5.1, God says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, do you have this peace? Do you have this peace? From this peace with God flow all other manifestations of peace in our lives. God's restoration is characterized by a new peace. And it is called here a covenant of peace, meaning that it's not just a standalone gift. It's not just a one-time gift. Rather, it is, a, it is making a commitment of a relationship that is characterized by peace. Because God's restoration is a covenant of peace, the life of the people of God, the life of the church, is to be a manifestation of living out the peace God grants us. That's why, dear friends, we are encouraged by God's grace to pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's why God's Word encourages us to seek to live in peace with everyone. It's a spiritual command. Why? Because when we do so, we actually put on display the peace that God grants us freely. A last aspect of the of the restoration that God promises, that God promises a glorious and secure city. We see this in verses 11 through 17. In verse 11, God calls his people by their current condition. He says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Don't you love it when God gets real and you get to see and understand that God knows the mess you're in. Sometimes hearing just words of, of promise or words of this glorious future might lead us to wonder, well, that's all good and dandy and fun, but, 
But does, does God know what mess I'm in right now? And we need to be assured that God knows our real messy situation. And God is not afraid in the midst of promising a glorious future to yet acknowledge and say to his people, I know your messiness. I know that you are storm-tossed. I know that you're not comforted right now. When I'm promising you this great stuff, I'm not turning a blind eye to your pitiful misery that you're in right now. So God says, listen to me, you who are storm-tossed and not comforted. But notice, notice God moving the attention of his people from their circumstances to what he promises. In verse 11, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. And you may be wondering, what are all these weird words in this verse? You know what they are? They're weird names because they're precious stones. They're so precious that we don't get to see them very often. They're not common things. God says he will rebuild the city of his people with the most precious of jewels. And notice, actually, God says he will, he will change the foundations of the city to be made of those precious jewels. He will make the walls of the city to be of those precious jewels. And he will make the gates of the city to make, be made of those precious jewels. Instead of being afflicted, torn, tossed, uh, storm-tossed and not comforted, God will restore the dwelling city of his people to be off the charts. Friends, this picture of how God promised to restore Jerusalem anticipates and looks forward to the picture of a new Jerusalem that we get in the book of Revelation. These pic- this picture of a new Jerusalem that is changed and transformed with these precious stones looks forward. And the Apostle John in the book of Revelation says, I am still seeing it as a future vision. That reality has not yet come. It is not an earthly Jerusalem that we're waiting for to be restored. It is a heavenly one. And by the way, the book of Hebrews reminds us that even Abraham was looking forward not to an earthly Jerusalem. He was looking forward to a heavenly Jerusalem, the city whose designer and builder was God himself. And in verses 14 through 17, God takes away the fears of his people. The terrors are gone. The threat is gone. In this new city, even if someone would try to attack God's people, God assures them that the attack will not take effect. In other words, the city that God is preparing is not only glorious, it's also secure. Friends, think how much we as people long for security. How often we face fears in our lives of all sorts. Think how often and what kind of measures we take to protect ourselves protect ourselves even from one another, even from the hurtful words that we might hear from another person. Friends, the city that God prepares for his people will be completely secure with nothing to fear. Chapter 54 ends with a sweet conclusion. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. All the things we just heard about the new people of God the shame-free future, the enduring peace, the glorious and secure city. These are part of the inheritance that God prepares for his people as he plans to restore them. 
And all of it is accomplished because of the servant of the Lord in chapter 53. But after making these promises known, God turns to us and he wants to invite us to respond to that promise restoration. These promises are promises that invite us to engage and to respond. So in chapter 55, what we see is a chapter filled with God's invitation for his people to respond. If chapter 54 started with an invitation to a barren woman to sing, in chapter 55, the invitation is given to anyone to come to God, the God who is restoring. What is this invitation? What, what does God's invitation comprise of or include or involve? How, how do we see this invitation described? Well, there's going to be four things, four descriptions about God's invitation. God's invitation is free and satisfying. God's invitation is free and satisfying. Chapter 55, verse 1. Four times we see the word come. You see in verse 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. For the fourth time, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Friends, you can't miss. You can't miss the invitation in this verse. Four times, come, 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 come. Who should come? Who should come? There's three categories of people mentioned to whom the invitation to come is given. First of all, the thirsty. Thirst in the Bible oftentimes refers not to physical thirst. Most often it refers to the longings of the soul. Thirst refers to a search our hearts have to satisfy our needs and our wants. And the first category of who is invited to come are, are all those who are searching for something. All those in whom something is missing. Something they can't live without. We all have an area of our lives where that thirst is manifested. Perhaps it's a thirst for peace. Perhaps it's a thirst for meaningful relationships. Perhaps it's a thirst for attention. Perhaps it's a thirst for, for protection and security. Perhaps it's a thirst for significance. Perhaps it's a thirst for righteousness. Battling sin and, and continuing to fail and feeling like you're, you're never going to make it. The thirst for righteousness. Do you, I wonder, do you know your thirst? Do you know what your thirst is? In Isaiah's time, it was the thirst of, of God's exiled people to be restored because they were deeply broken. God speaks to everyone who thirsts and points them to waters. In other words, God knows where the supply for our thirst is if only we would consider the direction He is giving us. But there's a second category of people to whom God issues His command to come. It's the people who have run out of resources. It's the people who have nothing left to get what they need. Look at verse 51 again. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God here speaks to those who are out of their own resources. They spent it all and have nothing left. God says to them, don't let your bankruptcy keep you away 
from coming to me. What I have to give you is freely offered. Now, how is it freely offered? Because the suffering servant in chapter 53 paid for it. God now offers the spoil of victory freely to God's people. Sometimes people say, well, I can't come to God yet because I'm not good enough. Or because I can't do all that God wants me to do. Friends, God's provision is given freely. We don't earn it. But there's a third category of people addressed in this invitation to come. The person here in the third category is not the bankrupt person. It's a person who is actually still with resources. He still has money. He's still spending it, but spends it on things that will not satisfy. For those in this category, it might be harder to hear in the invitation to come because they actually have resources of their own that they can use to fulfill the hunger of their hearts. Look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Friends, I suspect that many of us this morning or most of us this morning might find ourselves in this third category. Many of us may have not hit the rock bottom. We may think that we still have resources. We still have strength in us to buy the things that can satisfy our thirst in life. We may even feel good about ourselves because we are active in seeking to satisfy ourselves with what we can do, what we can produce. But God knows that what we earn for ourselves will never ultimately satisfy. So God says, why spend your money? Why spend your labor on things that can't satisfy the hunger of our souls? I wonder, dear friends, what are the things that you do and try to figure out on your own to satisfy the hungers of your soul. What things would you put in this category? And you might even feel proud about yourself, that you can manage yourself, that you are a self-reliant and self-organized person, that you have it all together. And God says, don't rely on what you can do for yourself satisfy the hunger of your soul. God wants to offer us something better than what we can get for ourselves or by ourselves. And he says in chapter 2, in verse 2, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Earlier in Isaiah 40, 44, chapter 44, verse 20, God describes the idolater as feeding on ashes. And here God invites his people to feed, to, to feed on rich food that he is providing. And he's providing it freely. I wonder, which party would you rather go to? To one that will serve you ashes? Or to one with rich food? With wine and milk and bread and honey. and All these are images of luxurious provisions. But of course, we often don't get, to, don't get to see God's invitation as enjoying rich food, don't we? Rather, we oftentimes prefer to see God's invitation as if we're going to miss out on the good stuff of life. Because we hunger for what this world offers us, because we actually think that what we give ourselves or what this world gives us is better for us, we actually think that what God invites us to is more like ashes. 
And God says, oh, no, no, no. You've got to get this straight. The world will tell you that accepting God's invitation is like giving up the party with a rich food. But God says it's the other way around. To keep ignoring God is to go on the path that takes you to ashes and that will feed you with ashes. Just keep going long enough on that path and you will start getting it. If we keep reading, we find out that the rich food that God provides is life itself. Life itself, the rich food that God offers, is a food that sustains us through the grave. It's a food that sustains us in the deepest of our sorrows. It's a food that sustains us when we think that all hope is gone. In verse 3, God's invitation reaches a climax, and God says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Oh, friends, God says that our souls live by hearing God's word. You can't feed it with pizza. You can't feed it with money. You can't feed it with success. You can't feed it with reputation. You can't feed it with earthly pleasures. Our souls live by hearing the word of God. Friends, this is why we encourage one another to speak God's word in each other's lives. This is why in the morning service, the main part of our gathering is, is reserved for teaching and proclaiming God's Word because God's Word is a source of life for our souls. Friends, our souls live by what we hear. Our souls live by what comes into these years if it's the Word of God. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Jesus responded to, devil, to, the, to, the, to the devil and said to him, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that was a quotation from Deuteronomy that Jesus quoted as he faced the devil. The devil knows. The devil knows and he tempts us to feed our souls with what we can touch, with what this world can offer us. And Jesus and the prophet Isaiah and God says, no, my people, your soul will live if you hear well to what I say, we live by hearing. Faith, the book of Romans says, faith comes by hearing. Oh, friends, as we come to hear the word of God, God makes to, promises to make an everlasting covenant. We see that in verse 4 and 5. And it's not a one-time gift. Again, in, in these chapters, we see the covenant showing up twice. It's an unending commitment that God makes to his people. So God's invitation is free and satisfying. God's invitation is, is urgent. As great as God's invitation is, it's not to be ignored or put off. In verse 6, God says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Friends, many people today who hear God's invitation may be tempted to postpone responding to it. They might argue in their minds, I can always come to God later. I can always wait until next week. I can always wait until I enjoy this season of my life, until I enjoy this, this thing that I'm doing right now. And God says, seek the Lord while he may be found. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
You don't know if tomorrow you will live. Seek the Lord today. Respond to the Lord today. Don't delay assuming you can respond another time. God's invitation is urgent. God's invitation, third of all, has a clear purpose. I'm sorry, a clear response. What is involved in coming to God? We hear the call to come, 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 come. But what's involved in it? Well, verse 6 gives us the elements of what's involved in responding to the Lord. Seek the Lord. Call upon Him. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And fourth, return to the Lord. Did you catch these four verbs that define accepting God's invitation? Seek, call, forsake, and return to the Lord. Friends, we respond to God's invitation not simply by showing some initial interest. That's a start. That's a good start. But it doesn't end there. No, we accept God's invitation also by calling upon the Lord. But it doesn't stop with a prayer. (laughs) So many times, oh dear friends, so many times we think that we respond to God simply by giving a, a sinner's prayer. Friends, it doesn't stop with simply giving a prayer. Prayer can be included in the response to the Lord for sure. But it doesn't stop there. It's seek the Lord, call upon Him, let the wicked forsake His way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and then return to the Lord. This is called repentance. Responding to God involves a turning in our lives, a turning that turns away from our sinful ways and even from our sinful thoughts. It's not just a forsaking of the ways. It's a forsaking of the thoughts that are sinful and rebellious. And then as we forsake that, we return. And it's this call that God gives and calls people to have. We seek, we call, we forsake, and we return. Friends, friends, repentance is simply a visible manifestation that when we ask God to save us from our sin, we mean it. It's meaningful. I often hear Christians give the gospel without calling people to repent, without calling people to forsake their sinful ways and sinful thoughts and turning to God. Friends, what do we ask them to do if we stop only to a short change response to the gospel? We do not give them any, any good news. We do not do them any favor by giving them a shorter response than what God asks us to do, than what God himself would have us do and say. And finally, God's invitation not only has a clear response, God's invitation has a clear reason why we should accept. We should accept God's invitation because he will have abundant pardon. We see that in verse 7. God assures us that when we turn to the Lord, when we forsake our sin, the Lord will have compassion on us. He will pardon us, not with a bare minimum pardon, but with an abundant pardon. God calls us to to respond to his invitation because his thoughts are not our thoughts. Verse 8, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Why should we respond to God's invitation? Because our natural inclination, in our natural inclination, we think that our ways must be God's ways. How often, dear friends, we actually think that God's ways must be our ways. 
because they seem to be the good ways. And God says, oh no, my people. My ways are not your ways, and your ways are not my ways. And as a matter of fact, not only are they separate, they're so separate. It's as, far, as high the heavens are from the earth. Friends, what this should tell us, this comparison should lead us to mistrust our ways and instead trust God's ways. But often we are more prone to trust our ways and mistrust God's ways, don't we? Friends, don't confuse your ways with God's ways. Don't prefer your ways for God's ways. Don't listen to your heart to figure out what God says. Look at his word. It's clear. Look at his word. God's ways revealed in his word are way higher than anything we could come up with on our own. So why trust, why, why respond to God's invitation? Because God will abundantly pardon, because God's thoughts are not our thoughts, because God's word will accomplish God's purposes. In verse 11, 10 and 11, we have one of the most beautiful pictures of the power of God to accomplish everything that he purposes with his word. God says, it's my word, just as the rain falls down on the earth and does not return without a harvest, without giving seed to the sower and fruit to the, to the farmer, so my word shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. Well, friends, if the promise politicians make are often empty, if the promises that we might make to one another often don't get to be fulfilled for one reason or the other, be sure of this. God's promise will not fail. God's word will accomplish everything that he says will accomplish. And then lastly, why should we accept God's invitation? The reason to accept God's invitation, because God's plans will be fulfilled. Not only is his word powerful to accomplish his purposes, but God's plans will be fulfilled. Look at verse 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. This text that we began reading started with a call to sing for joy and now ends with an assurance that God's people will go out in joy and will be led out in peace. And then we get a glimpse of that future fulfillment in verse 13. We see an interesting image. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And you may wonder, what do I do with that? Well, the thorn and the, the, and the, thorn and the briar all showed up after man fell off in the garden. The, 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 the thorns and, and, the, and the, the briars are, are the fingerprints that this creation has been cursed. God says, they will be no more. Not only that, God says, I will replace them. I'll replace them with, with a cypress and a myrtle. And you may say, what do I, why those two trees? You know why those two trees? They're evergreens. They never dry out. Never. God will transform our reality to the place that the, all the effects of cur the curse will be taken and replaced with that which will be permanent. This transformation that God promises, dear friends, 
will bring glory to God. The name of God will be manifested, will be glorified, and will be an everlasting sign. It says, and it shall make a name for the Lord and an everlasting sign that shall never be cut off. That transformation will be the glorious display of God's glorious name. It will never, ever, ever be perishing. Friends, I began this morning by talking about what we tend, how we tend to respond when someone brings us a good news that things will get better. I gave you the example of, of trying to buy the pill, the promise that traffic in Austin will get better. We might get excited about that news, or we might remain suspicious about that. And we have very good reasons to remain suspicious. But God's promises, dear friends, are more significant than simply fixing our traffic problems. And God's promises are coming not from a politician. They're coming from the maker who created the heavens and the earth, who says, I will do this. Trust me. I will make my word be sufficient and be successful, and you will go out in joy. You will have peace. And I will not be asleep until I will make my word accomplish all that I purpose with it. God's restoration promises are way bigger. God's restoration includes a rebuilding of his people, a shame-free future, an enduring peace, a glorious and secure, secure city. But this restoration calls us to respond, calls us to come to God, to come to him with our thirsts, to come to him with our hungers. Stop providing for yourself for the hungers of your soul. Turn away from what you can give your soul to eat. Turn to the Lord, and that means seek him, call upon him, forsake your ways and your thoughts, and return to the Lord. And God assures us that his word and his plans will fully be accomplished. Let's pray. Father, if there's any mistrust